Let's, uh, let's dive into Mark's gospel this morning. We're in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And for those of you who are guests this morning, um, I, I want to tell you a little bit about our church. We, we believe uh, that God came, God the Son came down to rescue sinners, and we're going we're gonna to read about that in Mark's gospel here in just a minute. And we believe that that when we trust in Christ, and that Christ gives us a new life and a new perspective, and that He changes why we live and what we're living for and how we live, and uh, we believe Jesus makes all the difference, and that He's worthy of all the glory that we could give Him. And so, I like to say, North Road Baptist Church exists for three reasons. We want to be Christ's church. We don't want to be just any church. We want to be the church that belongs to Christ, looks like Christ, lives for the glory of Christ, and reads in the Bible what the church should look like and endeavors to the best of our ability with God's help to look like that church. So we want to be Christ's church. Secondly, we want to impact the Roanoke Valley, right? We don't want to just love it. We don't want to just serve it. We want to see Christ through our church make a discernible, visible, tangible impact in the lives of people living in Roanoke that only Christ can make. We believe God's left us here to be a part of that. And finally, we want to reach the world for the glory of Christ. So we want to be Christ church. We want to impact the valley. We want to reach the world, world through people like Jason and Anna Reedy, through people like Brian Paul Hamas in Honduras, through the more than 3,000 missionaries that we have around the world through our partnership with 47,000 like-minded churches in the United States. We want to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the only thing, it's the only place where we find a hope that never disappoints. So that's why we're here this morning and we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. And so we walk through books of the Bible and try to understand what God has said. Because if God wrote us a book, we should want to understand it. It, it changes our lives. It changes us. And so if you're brand new here this morning, what you've walked into is a sermon series through the book of Mark. And we are in chapters 8. We've been in chapters 8 through 10 in this series on what it means to follow Jesus, what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And so this morning, we come to sort of the end of that section of Mark in 8 through 10 on what discipleship looks like, what it looks like to follow Christ. And so this morning, I want to preach to you on two responses to the cross that we see in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 32 through 52. So would you hear with me? The word of God as I read, beginning in verse 32 of chapter 10. They were on the road, as they have been since chapter 8. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I don't know about you, but that's a little awkward right after Jesus says, I'm going to go die for you. Uh, we want you to do whatever we ask of you, Jesus. Okay, all right. You just asterisk that in your Bible as one of the more awkward moments in Scripture. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? 
They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John, calling them to himself. Jesus said to them, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up, he is calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask in the few moments that we have together that you would help us to comprehend what you would want us to know in the reading and the hearing of your word. God, strengthen this preacher. Help me to speak the gospel boldly. Holy Spirit of God, we know that you are present everywhere, but we ask that you would be especially present in this room, that, that the word that you have breathed out, now that it is preached, God, that you would give us ears to hear, and that you would give us an attention span, perhaps a bit longer than we're used to, that you would cause us to listen a bit differently than we were listening to our favorite news program or television show, God, that we would lean into this text together this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's passage concludes what Danny Aiken calls the most sustained and specific teaching on discipleship in the New Testament. In other words, if you wanted to go anywhere in the Bible and say, what does it look like to be a disciple from chapters 8 to chapter 10? That's the question that Mark is answering. The teaching begins with Jesus healing a blind man. You remember that? Back at Bethsaida, he heals him in stages. And then the passage ends in chapter 10 with Jesus doing what? Healing a blind man. In each chapter, we read where Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection. And then the disciples give a foolish response. And then Jesus gives a lesson on following him. Jesus is trying to open our eyes, church, to see what it looks like to really be a church who is following after Jesus. And my prayer for us this morning is that Jesus 
would continue his work of opening our eyes to see how beautiful and amazing and glorious and worthy that Jesus is. In verse 32 through 34, Jesus gives the most specific prediction of his coming death. He knows he's going to be delivered and condemned and handed over and mocked and spit upon and scourged and killed. That's pretty specific. And then in Mark's gospel, as we continue to walk to the cross, that's exactly what's going to happen in Jesus' life. And yet, Jesus is the one at the head of the line. Do you see that in verse 32? Jesus was leading the way, walking ahead of them as they go up to Jerusalem. This is, this is a leader who is confident in the God that he is following. He, he will go wherever it takes, whatever is required of him. He will lead the way at Passover. Israel would go up to Jerusalem to worship and offer sacrifices to God. But this time, the living Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, will go up to Jerusalem as God's sacrificial Lamb. He will go as the one who will offer perfect worship to God the Father so that God can pass over our sins forever through His Son. Jesus goes to show us true worship and to be our true sacrifice. And Jerusalem, by the way, is a city that you have to go up to. You can't go down to Jerusalem. Anywhere around Jerusalem is lower than Jerusalem. And Jericho is only 20 miles from Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is 3,500 feet higher in elevation. In other words, the road to the cross is not an easy road. It's a hard road. It's a tough road. In 20 miles, ascending 3,500 feet. Why? So that he can take the nails for you. So that he can take the nails for me. And something about the way that Jesus leads his disciples leaves them amazed and terrified. Do you see that in verse 32? There, there's, they've heard the message that Jesus is going to die. And of course, they're trying to ignore it and just focus on the kingdom and all the good stuff that comes. But somehow, someway, the way that Jesus is charging toward the cross terrifies them. It amazes them. It captures them. And good leaders do that, don't they? No matter what the detractions are, no matter what the people try to say, no matter what people try to raise and throw landmines in the middle of what God wants to do, when we're so firmly fixed on the Father's will for us, on what Christ has done for us, and we won't be deterred no matter what, because God is calling us to make a difference in Jesus' name, or in Jesus' case, He's called to go to the cross to rescue us. That kind of leadership, it terrifies people sometimes. What is this guy thinking about? He's just marching to the cross. What is his problem? He's undeterred. But Jesus is undeterred because he's not trying to please man. He's trying to please his Father in heaven. And church, when we get a holy gumption about us, and we don't care what the world says about North Roanoke Baptist Church, we don't care what people in North Roanoke Baptist Church say about North Roanoke Baptist Church, so long as we are following the will of God to make disciples of all the nations, that is when God takes the church from zero to sixty. There's something amazing about the way that Jesus is leading. I believe Jesus has Isaiah 50 verse 7 in his mind. Isaiah is all about the suffering servant and the Messiah. And we read in Isaiah 50 verse 7, The Lord God helps me. Therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. How does Jesus go to the cross? 
He believes the promise of his father about his ministry all the way back in Isaiah. Jesus' mission is to get to the cross in a way that would lead to the rescue of sinners. His mission, therefore, is our ambition until He comes again. Do you notice what Jesus says in verse 33? He doesn't say, I'm going to go to the cross. He doesn't say, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. He says, we are going to Jerusalem. We are going the way of the cross. And Jesus is still doing that today. He's calling His church. He's calling those who have been adopted in the family of God to follow in the way that He has already gone for us. You see, to follow Jesus is not just to get all the good stuff, life everlasting and all that. It is also to join Him in offering ourselves to God for the good of others and the glory of God Himself. That's what it is to follow Jesus. Jesus is leading churches into the battle for the hearts and the souls of sinners whose lives are won when we follow our King on the road to the cross. We can do this, church, without being afraid or fearful. Why? Because we know that whatever Christ's mission might cost us, even if it's our lives, look what verse 34 says. Resurrection is on the other side. Jesus didn't just predict His death. He also predicted His resurrection. Life everlasting with our King is on the other side. The reason Jesus gives us resurrection life living on the inside and the promise of a physical resurrection on the other side of the grave is so that we would be willing to lay our lives down in the here and now so that His mission would go forward to people who don't know the good news that there's a King who gave His life for them and He raised up again. And if He'll give their lives, if they'll give their lives to Him, He'll raise them up on the last day. Jesus' resurrection gives us a joy and a confidence that even death itself cannot still. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. So the question that this third and final and most comprehensive prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection puts before us is this. How will you, North Roanoke, how will you individual, how will you, Pastor Daniel, respond to a king who goes to a cross to rescue you? Will we receive His life and share in His mission? Or will we look past Jesus and then make Jesus and what He did all about ourselves all over again? Jesus died to deliver you from a fascination with yourself. There's somebody far more glorious than you to have your eyes fixed on. And His name is Jesus. And, and the next two stories, after Jesus tells us about the cross and the resurrection, the next two stories in chapter 10 show us two very different responses to the message of the cross. These two different responses to the cross show us first what we should not do, and then secondly what we should do. So when we consider the cross of Christ, first we must not seek special treatment or personal advantage, but rather pursue sacrificial service. And secondly, we must see and follow Jesus. First, we must not seek personal advantage, but pursue sacrificial service. Jesus has predicted His coming death. He's quite specific about it. He's going to be, get this, the King of Israel is going to be handed over to the Gentiles to be mocked and scourged and killed. And then the disciples are like, so what can you do for us? You know, the disciples have what my children have. It's called selective hearing. Any of you have children with selective hearing? I mean, my daughter, she's amazing. She could be on her iPad or watching a program, and I could ask her a question, and you would think no words had come out of my mouth. 
right? I mean, she, she just doesn't hear. Elizabeth, what, 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 what? Well, I've, I've been talking to you and you're right there. Meanwhile, if I'm all the way at the other end of our house, in the bedroom, talking to Stacy, and I would happen to say, hey, babe, I think it'd be nice to go back to Disney World sometime. Sometimes I say that to my wife just to prove to my kids that they can hear. Because you know what happens as soon as I say the words Disney World, no matter where I am, no matter how far away, no matter how softly I say it, hey dad, what are y'all talking about? Couldn't hear the whole time. And then you say, you drop Disney World in the middle of a sentence, light bulbs come on. You see, James and John, are a lot like my kids. They're happy to talk about Disney World and all the things that would benefit them, but they just want to ignore the cross. You talk to my kids about chores, they're zoned out. Put Disney World in the middle of the sentence, oh yeah, Disney World. And James and John say to Jesus, okay, okay, Jesus, we know you've said something about dying and all that, but you're the Messiah after all. You're headed to the city of David and that means you're going to enter your glory and get your kingdom. And we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Whoa. What do we make of this? It sounds crazy, but isn't it ourselves? Don't we focus on Disneyland and Disney World and, and miss the message of the cross? As Edwards writes, they're quick to claim the benefits of God's kingdom, but they're slow to hear the costs of participating in it. The sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee want the son of man to be a little genie in their bottle. And we got churches all across North America that want church to be their genie in the bottle. I want my program, I want my stuff, I want my thing. I'm not really here about Jesus, I'm just here as long as it's comfortable to me. As long as we're doing all the programs that I like to do, then I'll be at that church. And as soon as that falls away, then I'm going to leave that pastor and leave that church and find the church that does all the stuff that I want to do because I want a church that's made in my image, not a church that helps me become, be conformed to the image of Christ. While James and John get nearly everything wrong about Jesus, including, by the way, in Matthew's Gospel, roping their mom into actually asking the question for them. Hey mom, we don't really want to ask Jesus this, can you do it for us? Here's what they do understand. Jesus is the Messiah. And they do believe that in Jerusalem, He will inherit His Messianic Kingdom. And they're right about that. But they want a kingdom that's about them more than it's about God's kingdom. So in verse 36, Jesus graciously exposes their motives with this question. I, I would not have been so gracious. I would have wanted to plunk them in the forehead. What? I just told you I'm going to the cross to die for you. And you're asking what I can do for you. Like, I, I would have gone there. But instead, Jesus goes, okay. What do you want me to do for you? It's a great question, right? It's a great question to ask ourselves. What do we want Jesus to do for us? I mean, doesn't that expose our motives? Jesus, what, what do I want from you? Do, do I want glory for myself or do I want to see more of Jesus? Do I want to see more people encounter the saving love of God? Do I want to see Christ turn a church upside down and inside out and to become radically united to Christ and His mission until He comes? Do I want to get to heaven and have a 
big old honking crown full of jewels in it, not to put on my head, but to lay at Jesus' feet. But James and John just want the best seats in the house. And they weren't Baptists. They wanted to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. The Baptists would have asked for the back row. Right? But whatever you think the best seat in the house is, that's what they wanted. They speak of Christ's glory. They're talking about Christ's glory. But actually, they're angling for their own glory. As Edwards writes, how easily worship and discipleship are blended with self-interest or worse... Self-interest is masked as worship and discipleship. Jesus, did He come to serve us? Absolutely. But why? So that we might gratefully serve others in His name and prove and show His glory to the watching world. Christ leaves us here to be about His glory, not our glory. Isn't that great? We don't have to pretend to be somebody we're not. We don't have to put on a good performance and hear the applause of the crowd to be accepted and adopted. We're here for somebody else's glory. In Christ, we are free to pursue and declare that there's somebody more glorious than us, that there's things that I can't do that Christ has done. And when we really get that, we will gladly lay down our lives to prove the glory of the one who rescued us as we sacrificially serve others as he served us. In verses 38 through 45, Jesus explains why it is foolish to seek personal glory and advantage in the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to hang on here. We shouldn't seek personal advantage, but we should pursue sacrificial service. And Jesus is making that point, and He's going to make that point in verses 38 through 45 by giving three reasons why seeking personal advantage doesn't make any sense. So hang on, okay? First, they don't know what they're asking. Look at verse 38. What does Jesus say? You don't know what you're asking. The glory that you're after can only come through a sacrificial death. The baptism and the cup are references to Jesus' death, specifically His unique death in the place of sinners. As Aiken writes, Jesus' passion and death were a baptism. His being overwhelmed and flooded and immersed in the destiny planned for Him by His Father. And at the cross, Jesus takes the cup, which means He dies in our place and takes the wrath of God unto Himself rather than letting it go onto those who should have had it. All those who are in Christ, God has already drank down the wine cup of God's wrath for us. The glory of Christ is this. He has a glory that is His alone. Why? Because He dies in death that is something only He could accomplish. How many of us can die for the sins of the world? None of us. We were all incapable, all unqualified. We can't give ourselves away in the same way that Jesus gave Himself for us because we cannot make atonement or payment for sin. In other words, Jesus has a glory that is uniquely His. We sing it in the song, Wonderful Name. He has no rival. He has no equal. And it is not likely that we are following Jesus, church, if we're simultaneously pursuing and thinking of our own glory. And yet, while we can't die for others in the exact way that Jesus died for us, He does say to His disciples in verse 39, You will share in my cup and my baptism in some way. You see, God works through the sacrifices of His people to bring His saving grace to others. When the church lays down, the gospel advances. I've often heard 
this in church life. If God would just save a famous person, if God would just save Tiger Woods, if God would just save Michael Jordan, if God would just save people who has everything that the world says they need to have, then the gospel will go forward. What kind of craziness is that? Now, I, I hope God saves Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods, but it's no less of a miracle that He saved you. God's in the business of using ordinary people. People who don't have anything that the world has. And he turns the world upside down with ordinary people. He grabs 12 disciples, one of them who betrays him, and he still changes the world. You see, the kingdom works in the opposite way the world thinks. Christ doesn't build his true church through status or position. He builds it through people who are eager to lay down their lives and sacrifice for the glory of God. People who willingly give and serve. Why? Because we've already gladly received his resurrection. And if, we've got, if we're going to be raised in the end, then let me lay down my life for the glory of Christ now. The second reason James and John are wrong to focus on their glory is that the whole matter of rewards is, and glory is left to the hidden purposes of God. In verse 40, Jesus says, it's not mine, that's emphatic, it's not for me in my humanity to dole out the, heating, the seating assignments. It's already been settled by God. Yes, Jesus is God, make no mistake about it, but God settled the seating assignments before Jesus ever came. So what then is our motivation for serving Jesus? Our motivation for serving and following Jesus is not what we hope to get for ourselves. Rather, it is the great joy and thanksgiving for the one that we've already received. Jesus has given us Himself. That, that produces a wellspring of joy that leads us to do what the world would say is unthinkable. We give like crazy people. We serve like crazy people. We live for others like crazy people. What in the world is wrong with these people? They're so excited about living for other people. It's what happens when Jesus arrests the heart of a sinner and He arrests the heart of a church and He moves them to look to the glory of Christ. A third reason that James and John are wrong to think of themselves as they're thinking like the world. You remember a few Sundays ago, the disciples denied the children from coming to Jesus and Jesus gets indignant. Well now, the disciples who had excluded the children are indignant because they're being excluded by James and John. Turnabout's fair play, I guess. You say, why, why are the other disciples angry? I think they're probably angry because they didn't ask the question first. Man, James and John, that's a pretty good question. I wish I'd have gotten to Jesus with that one first. Now, James and John, who've been hanging out with Peter the whole time, right? They've been like bros. But suddenly, as they get close to the cross of Christ, what happens? This is good, church. They default to their natural allegiances. This is what happens in church life. When things get tough... When things get a little rocky, when things get a little shaky, rather than keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus and His glory and His blood for me alone, we want to default to, well, that's the family that I'm closest to, so I'm going to hang with them, or we're going to go to this church. That's not the gospel. 
The gospel is that Jesus and His blood has made brothers out of people and sisters out of people who had nothing to do with one another until He brought them together and His bond is so tight and so great and His blood so unifying and the sacrifice so amazing that I'm keeping my eyes fixed on that and on that alone. I'm not going back to the natural allegiances of the world. My allegiance is to the living Lord Jesus Christ no matter what. Is this on this morning? Are y'all here The disciples are following Jesus, but they're still focused on themselves. So Jesus calls the disciples to Himself in verse 42, and He says, It's time for another lesson. Greatness in the kingdom of God and greatness in the world always come in two entirely different ways. The Gentiles have rulers, and they want you to know that they're in charge. As Aiken writes, by earthly standards, self-promotion is right. But by heavenly standards, it couldn't be more wrong. In the kingdom, the great ones are the servants, and they are the slaves of all. And then after Jesus gives us those three reasons why the disciples should not seek special advantages in the kingdom, He then turns it around and He says, well, why should I? Why should I live this way, Jesus? Why should I lay my life down? This is crazy talk. Why would I do that? And the answer to the question is in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It is the key verse of the whole gospel. It's a verse that I want to encourage you to memorize. And it starts with these words, for even. It's a statement of purpose and, I can't think of a better word right now, profundity. You say, what does that mean? It, it grabs you. If you don't know why you should live this way, consider what the Son of Man, the living Lord Jesus Christ did. Even Jesus came not to be served. The King of glory, the Son of God, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many, for sinners. How Jesus came to serve you and me is not just our example. He didn't come just as our example. He came as our payment. A ransom is a price that is paid to deliver another. It is a bail paid on behalf of a prisoner of war or a slave. You see, apart from Christ, we were slaves to sin. We were bound to face the wrath of God forever in hell. We needed somebody else to pay the price for us. And God searches the world over and there's no one qualified to pay the price. And so God Himself and the person of His Son comes to pay our ransom, to pay our debts. Like Gomer the harlot in Hosea, we had all gladly and willingly sold our slaves ourselves on the slave market of sin. And Jesus, like Hosea the faithful husband, comes to buy us back and make us His own at a great cost to Himself. That's why we go last, church. It's nothing compared to the price that Jesus paid by going last for us. And oh, by the way, some people want to say, well, Jesus isn't God. Surely He's not God. Well, how did the Son of Man come? If He wasn't God before He came. He had to exist. But in order for Jesus to come, He has to exist before He comes. The very verb implies that He's pre-existent. Right? So Jesus, the pre-existent Son of God, comes as Son of Man. And He comes to give His life as a ransom for many. The word for there, for many, is the word in the place of. Did you know Jesus came to trade places with you? 
Jesus came to trade places with sinners so sinners could be freed from the penalty of sin. He was in heaven, but He came down. The Son of Man, He was the Son of Man, but He willingly suffered as Isaiah's suffering servant in Isaiah 53, the one who would justify the many. He came to serve us in a way that we could never serve ourselves. God's righteousness demanded a payment for sin, and God's love provided it in His Son. And the life that Jesus lived for us is the life that He empowers us to live for others. I know you're getting sleepy this morning, church. Don't miss this. The life that Jesus lived for us is the life He empowers us to live for others. Our unfailing hope is that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And get this, when we really get the gift of everlasting life on the inside through Christ's service to us, then we can't help but find a way to serve other people. It comes out. That's the life of Christ. It's the life of servanthood. In other words, the gospel doesn't just lead us to salvation through Christ's service. It also leads us to service because we really have Christ's salvation. It's both. So how do we avoid the trap of thinking that we are following Jesus while we're really just focused on ourselves? I mean, the disciples have been with Jesus for his whole ministry since he called them out. And they're getting, they're only 20 miles from the cross. And they're still saying, Jesus, what can you do for us? How, how do we avoid that? And I think the answer, the antidote is found in verses 46 to 52. We find the last healing miracle in Mark's gospel right here at the end of chapter 10. The miraculous healing of Bartimaeus gives us a picture of what it looks like when we trust in the resurrected Christ. Bartimaeus, although he's blind, sees Jesus more clearly than the disciples do. He's been waiting for the promised son of David, the son who would come and have an everlasting kingdom promised in 2 Samuel 7, the one who could have mercy upon him, the one who could not give him what he deserves, but instead give him grace everlasting. Bartimaeus means son of honor, but he recognizes that all true honor belongs to the son of David. He doesn't deserve a seat in the kingdom, but if Christ will mercifully grant him access to the kingdom, he will gladly receive it. And so what does he do? He cries out for mercy. But as he does, the crowd tries to get in the way. You see that in verse 48? Many in the large crowd wanted to silence him. Folks, there's, the world out there wants to silence Christians. They don't want you to be bold in your faith. They don't want you to be bold about how much you needed Jesus to save you. But when you understand that Jesus is your only hope, you refuse to be silent about your need for Christ. The church has a problem. We've got a bunch of silent Christians. When, when did we let the world silence us? CNN can't tell me to be quiet. Fox News can't tell me to be quiet. The government can't tell me to be quiet. I have to speak of the things that I have seen and heard. We will not be silent, though you try to silence us. Look at verse 49. He keeps crying out. and In verse 49, Jesus calls him over. And I love Bartimaeus' response. He doesn't waste any time in getting to Jesus. He throws aside his cloak which would have gotten in the way of him running to Jesus. So he throws off his cloak and he jumps to his feet and he comes to Jesus. The word jump, that's the only time in the New Testament we have the word jump. Bartimaeus jumps to get to Jesus. 
You know, sometimes when we give the hymn of response or the invitational hymn, sometimes I just pray that if, if God is revealing Himself to you, if He's challenging you through the preaching of the Word, I long for the day when people don't sit there and hang on to the pew and wonder and debate. Somebody would just jump up and say, I need Jesus. You say, well, that's crazy. I, I wish, why don't you jump up and just come on now. We'll just shut down the sermon. We can have lunch faster that way. Just saying but he comes to Jesus. Bartimaeus comes to Jesus the way that everybody's got to come. Desperate and eager. Eager to do whatever it is that Christ would call us to do. To be like a servant and a slave of all. And we know that that's what Mark is trying to teach us. Because of the sentence that Jesus asks in verse 51 is the exact same sentence he asked of James and John back in verse 36. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Do you see what Mark is inviting us to do? He wants us to compare the response of James and John and the response of Bartimaeus. Which response honors Christ as King? Which response is the one that we want to give? How this morning will we respond to the question, what do you want me to do for you? James and John want honor and privilege and prestige. They want to sit where others cannot sit. James and John want a special seat. But Bartimaeus just wants to see. Would to God, church, that we would be a church that says, I just want to see Jesus. I just want to see Him high and lifted up. I want to see Him going into the Roanoke Valley in a way that He's never gone before. I want to see Him going to the nations in a way that He's never gone before. Church, if we saw the moment that we are living in, I can FaceTime my brother in Japan. I can call him in Japan. We couldn't do that 100 years ago. The access that we have to technology and resources and money and, air, and airplane travel and boats, the things that we can do right now in the kingdom of God are unprecedented. And Jesus says to the church of God, what do you want me to do for you? And I pray that our answer is not that of James and John. It is of Bartimaeus. I just want to see. And that when we hear Jesus' response, that we would go with the confidence that our faith in Christ has not just given us physical sight, that it has literally, the word says, sick, saved you. This man who started out by the road in verse 46, you see what he does in 52? He follows Jesus on the road. Jesus is in the business of taking people who weren't even on the road. They were just sitting there broken and undone and incapable of even seeing life the way that God would have him to see it. And he comes walking by and he issues an invitation to you this morning. What do you want me to do for you? And some of you need to come and say, I just want to see. And in the moment that you see Jesus and Jesus says, now go, the only place you're going to be able to go is in the footsteps of service in Jesus' name. Did you see that? Jesus says you can go and Bartimaeus goes right behind Jesus. All the way to the cross. Church history tells us that Bartimaeus became a major leader in the church at Jerusalem. Do you long to see the glory of Christ and do whatever it takes for His glory to be known, no matter the cost? North Roanoke Baptist Church, may we be a church that says, Jesus, we want to see you. May we be a church that says, show us where we are holding back and give us the courage to be like Bartimaeus and to jump up and run to you in faith. Jesus, we want to see your glory. 
God restore our sight this morning. Cause us to reflect on what Jesus has done to secure our sight. May the sight that we have received compel us to give and to serve for the cause of Christ and the good of all nations till He comes. Jesus, we want to see and serve and declare and show Your glory. Would you pray with me as I invite our instrumentalists to come? King Jesus, we confess to you this morning that it is so easy to receive your salvation and to, to be invited to follow you on the road and then to forget about the road that we're on. God, we're so thankful that the road doesn't end at the cross. It doesn't even end at the resurrection. It, it doesn't really even end at your ascension because you're coming back for your church. You're coming back for your people. And, and we long to see your face. But God, from this day to that day, we long for others to know how great you are. And so this morning, God, in a, in a congregation this size, there's, there's got to be even one who would say, I, I, I've been focused on Jesus for all the wrong reasons. And I, I want the Spirit of God to do a work in my heart just to help me see Jesus and to live for Him. God, give me faith. Give me the faith that I need to lay my life down for the good of others because Christ has already laid down His life for me and given me life everlasting. So Lord, I pray that as we sing, You would have Your will and Your way as we have the opportunity to respond to You in faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you stand to your feet, we're going to sing about God giving us faith. And if God is working and stirring in your heart this morning, maybe you need a new church family. Maybe you've moved here from somewhere else. Or maybe you just need to surrender your life to Christ. Whatever your need, we invite you to come as we sing.